0: If you're able, out of respect for God's word, remain standing and we'll turn to John's gospel, chapter three, John, chapter three. So we are moving through John's gospel every Lord's Day morning. And this morning we find ourselves in the middle of John, chapter three, and that in the middle of this conversation between Nicodemus and our Lord. Jesus Christ. We'll begin reading verse 9 through verse 21. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher in Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. And you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven. That is the son of man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. So the reading, let's pray. Lord, our strength. Our insight, our help comes from you. And if this text teaches anything, it is that our help comes from the Lord and in particular, the Holy Spirit. So we pray for that work now that you would give us eyes to see the wonderful things in your law and in your gospel to love you and obey you and put these things into practice for your own glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know about you, but when I think of John 3.16, there are several things that come to my mind. Uh, John 3.16 was the very first Bible verse that I memorized. I remember doing that probably in the third grade in Sunday school. Um, It's also one of the most, at least I think, one of the most publicized uh, verses uh, in our nation. I mean, who hasn't seen a major league baseball game or sporting event or a large crowd with the sign marked John 3.16. And perhaps it is one of, if not the greatest verses in the Bible. But John 3.16 has a context. And so it's our job this morning to place it in that context and understand it there. And John chapter 3 is all about entrance into the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. How one enters the kingdom. Jesus has made that clear already to Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees who came to Jesus by night and entrance into the kingdom is not as the Pharisees thought. Remember, they thought the kingdom of heaven would be this earthly, physical, political machine by which they were delivered from the hands of the Romans. So they were looking for such a messiah or prince, a political deliverer and savior in that way. But the kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And in order to enter that kingdom, in order to see it, Jesus says, verse three, verse five, and understand it, one must be what? Born again. So we've seen the doctrine of regeneration, that regeneration is necessary and that entrance into the kingdom is all of grace, the grace of God. And so it begins with regeneration, being born again. Again, that's in verse 3. It's also in verse 5. And so last time we were in the middle of this conversation, it turns really into a monologue there. In verse 10, Nicodemus in verse 9 is asked this question, how can these things be, indicating that he misunderstood Jesus? So Jesus in verse 10 begins this dialogue or monologue. And uh, in that, he teaches us several characteristics about the message of the kingdom. It is of divine origin. It, it comes from God. It has to be revealed uh, through the prophets, through the prophet Jesus, even himself, by the Holy Spirit as well. And that this is nothing new. The message of the kingdom is nothing new. This was spoken about in the Old Testament. And so he referred back to Numbers 21, where that, there's that instance of, of the fiery serpents. And just as one of the serpents had to be a bronze serpent had to be lifted up on a pole and and men to look at that serpent in order to be healed, so too, Jesus says in our text, must the Son of Man be lifted up in order to bring about healing and the forgiveness of sins. And so we learn here as to why Jesus has come. That logos in verse 1 of chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, who was made flesh, verse 14 of chapter 1, we learn why it is that he was made flesh. He had to take upon a human nature in order to go to Calvary and suffer the terrible death of the Roman cross in our place. And so then, what does that death bring to those who believe, to those who look to Christ? Well, he tells us there in verse 15. This is the result. Of that crucifixion, the atonement, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So we come to that section beginning at verse 15, really, but also verse 16, where Jesus is talking again about eternal life, everlasting life. And so there are three things I want to bring out from our passage this morning concerning this eternal or everlasting life. By the way, if you look down at verse 36, that eternal life for the believer begins even now, because it says he who believes in the son of God or rather in the son has everlasting life. And so if you believe in Jesus, if you put all of your eggs into his basket, as it were, and trust in him, you have today everlasting life. And so then let's consider the three things Uh, that are taught here concerning this eternal life. First of all, we see here that the cross of Christ is necessary to bring about this eternal life. Again, that's in verse 15. It's also in verse 16. It's even back in verse 14, because he says in verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. The Son of Man must be lifted up, just as that Old Testament figure and type and shadow indicated. Jesus must be lifted up. We saw that this refers to his crucifixion, the manner by which he would die. And so it is necessary. Jesus must die. This is part of God's plan. And so as we think about that, there is this discussion in Christian teaching, Christian doctrine or theology. And it is the necessity of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Men have questioned that. Is it necessary? Could God have saved any other way? And uh, I believe with those who say that it was necessary, that it is necessary and was necessary. Why? Well, um, the scriptures at the very least imply this. For instance, in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17, it says this. Therefore, in all things, he, Jesus, he had to be made like his brethren. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people in order to make propitiation for the sins of his people. In other words, in order to satisfy the wrath of God, he had to stand in the place of sinners. And so he had to take on a nature like that of his brethren, a human nature. And so in John 1 14, he takes upon, we are told, human flesh. God's nature requires the atonement, the cross of Christ. Why? Because God is righteous. God is just. He, by no means, clears the guilty, right? The Bible tells us that. In Psalm 5.4, it says, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. Because God is so holy, infinitely so pure. Evil will not last in his presence. In fact in some places it says men will not stand in his presence in their fallen condition. And Paul in his exposition of the gospel in Romans 3, he picks up on this, God's nature how it requires the atonement, the death of Christ. Remember we saw that in Romans 3:25 and 26. You can jot that down. I won't go back and preach it again, but Paul there is explaining the cross and he says that God demonstrated through the cross of Christ Christ, his own righteousness. And he says that he, that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. What is Paul's point? Well, Paul's point is it would not be just for God just to say, oh, I forgive you and let sinners go scot-free, right? Right? If someone is guilty of murder and the judge says, "Okay, you can go. That's injustice. It would be contrary to law. Good law. Well, how much more would it be unjust for God to let sinners just go scot free without punishment? The wages of sin is death. And so in the gospel, we see that God is just and a justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, if you have faith in Jesus, you are justified. You're declared not guilty in the courtroom of God. But that doesn't mean that your sins are not atoned for or paid for. The fine has been paid by whom? Jesus. Where? At the cross. So at the same time, Jesus pays for our sins. And so God is still just. He remains just. And at the same time, we are justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, as Romans 5.1 puts it. And since God is unchangeable or immutable, uh, since he cannot deny himself, and as he has stated, as his law has stated, he must punish sin. Um, his attribute of immutability requires it. And evidently, God in his wisdom saw fit to remedy our problem of sin in this way through the cross in order to receive the most glory in that way. Because in Isaiah 42, 80, he says, my glory, I will not give to another And think about this. There's no way we could remedy the problem of our our own sin. You know, Matthew 18, Jesus teaches this. When you think of Matthew 18, perhaps you think of church discipline. But after that, Jesus talks about forgiveness. And he talks about the unmerciful servant who would not forgive. And because he wouldn't forgive, he's cast into the chamber forever. But Jesus there paints this picture of us and of all humanity. We owe this debt to God, insurmountable debt that we could never pay. But he was forgiven that debt. And how did God forgive that debt? How is it possible? It's possible through the cross of Jesus Christ. And so again, I just remind you of the centrality of the cross, of the shedding of blood by the Savior himself as the center of the gospel message. That's the center of it all. And so we see in this text concerning this everlasting life, this eternal life, that it is necessary um, Are made possible through the cross of Christ. There's a second thing here about this eternal life. That's in verses sixteen and seventeen. It's this this eternal life is rooted in God's love. It's rooted in the love of God. You think about it, God simply could have damned every human being. To hell forever, and left every human being in that estate forever and been perfectly just. As we've already seen, it is part of God's holiness and righteousness and justice that He punishes sin. And the wages of sin is death, Romans 6:23. Our just fine, Our just payment for sin is death and eternal, death and hell forever. But Romans 6, 23 says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so it's by God's grace. And here, as we see in verse 16, it's by God's love that we are not left in that fallen estate for those of us who believe in Jesus. In verse 16, look at it for God. So loved the world. That he gave his only begotten Son. Notice when it says God loved the world, it's in the past tense. This is instructed to us. And that teaches us that the love of God is not earned by humans. That God has loved us before, as 2 Peter 1 9 says, before time began. Let me put it another way, we've talked about regeneration, being born again. What did you have to do with your physical birth? Nothing. And what have you had to do with your spiritual birth? Nothing. We saw that it's the sovereign and free work of God, in particular, God the Holy Spirit. And so when we think about that, when we think about regeneration being totally the work of God, when we think about God having loved us before the foundation of the world, this teaches us again that it's his gracious love. It's not merited love. And this should bring rejoicing to those who are loved by God. And perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you you think, well, I hope my good outweighs the bad. Well, guess what? That's that's not how it works. We're saved by grace, the gracious love of God. And in fact, this was important for Nicodemus to to know and to be um, confirmed because he was a Pharisee. The Pharisees had a system of good works. It was a satanic lie that they believed that they could obey perfectly the law of God and earn favor and merit with the living God. Jesus rips that to shreds. He puts it in the, the, the wood chipper. And so, just as Nicodemus is reminded about this gracious love of God, so too are we. His love, we were told in Jeremiah, is an everlasting love. Jesus said, no man has any love greater than this than to lay one's life down for his brethren. And so it's unearned. We'll come back to that later. And so notice what is said about this love in verse 16. We have its manner, its degree. God so loved the world. Well, how much did he love the world? That he gave his only begotten son. In this way, God has loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so we have the gift of God's love, his only begotten son, the monogenes, the unique son, the only one ever that he had. You're a parent. You love your child. Can you imagine losing your child. Some have. God gave up His eternally begotten Son, His only begotten Son. And the writer of Hebrews picks up on this because it points back to Abraham in Genesis 22 and the Hall of Faith there. Hebrews 11 and verse 17. It says that Abe had so much faith. That at God's command, he was willing to offer his son, Isaac, who's probably in his late teens, early 20s. And of course, we know it happened in Genesis 22, just as Abraham had the dagger ready to kill his son because God commanded him. Yes, Abraham believed God could raise him from the dead. Romans 5, Romans 4. Um, God stopped and halted Abraham. And there was a ram in the thicket. That ram in the thicket is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, the substitute for the death of Isaac. And so in Genesis 22, in the Hebrew, it actually says that Abraham was to give, quote, his son, his only begotten son, his one and only. We have here its object, the object of God's love. It is the world. And uh, you may be familiar with the term cosmos, cosmology, not cosmetology, cosmology. And in verse 16, it says, for God so loved The world. So, what does he mean? I think the sense here is Jew and Gentile. The world in that sense. The world in the sense of 1 John 2 2, where it says um, that Jesus is the propitiation, not for our sins only, but of the world. That Jesus died for Jew and Gentile. Remember the Pharisees, the Jews in general. They had been taught to think that they were the apple of God's eye because there was something in spe- there was something special within them. Contrary to Deuteronomy six, Deuteronomy eight and so forth. Well, God says, I did not set my love on you because you're so great and better among the nations. I did it because of my sovereign will. Again, as grace. But they became. If you want to call it racist, they called the Gentiles dogs, the non-Jewish people dogs. And Jesus rebuked this in his ministry. And here this statement is destroying the racism and superiority complex of Nicodemus. God so loved the world. In Revelation 5.9 it says there is that song in heaven. You are worthy that is to the lamb it says, you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And by the way, just remind us of this again. Um, I don't think any of us here are native, at least ancestrally, to the United States and whatever it was before the United States of America, this land. We're all immigrants in one sense or another. But the nations are coming to us. For whatever reason, they're coming to us legally and illegally. And so we have an opportunity as we see that God loved the world. If you're tempted to be racist or to think that your color, whatever, your tribe, whatever, is superior, look at this verse. Jesus died for for men and women and children from every tongue, tribe, tribe. And And the enemy wants us to see all nations as our enemy. And perhaps they could be so. But also we should see them as a possible potential convert to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have its design here. God's love's design. We have its decree. Or rather, it's, well, there is that. It's degree, it's uh, gift, it's object, and then it's design. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that. Here's the reason. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Yes, we believe in whoever wills or whosoever wills. We looked at that last time. But God here, again, would have been just had he just written off the world. If he would have wadded up the paper and tossed it into the trash can and moved on, he would have been just in doing that, but he didn't. No, the design of God's love here is redemption. Think of an old house, this old house. It's it's basically destroyed. It is being destroyed. The time is near for it to fall on its foundation. But in come the guys... To give it life again. To give it purpose again. And God has done that with the world. Through the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, the world here, I think, is, is uh, very broad. I've already said Jew and Gentile, but even the earth itself, right? Romans 8 says that the earth, the world, awaits its what? Redemption. Redemption. 2 Peter 3, it says we await, we're longing and looking for a new heavens, a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so this is the reason for Jesus's first coming. See that there in verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This is the purpose for Jesus's first coming, his advent to save the world. He says elsewhere, the Son of Man did not come to destroy. He says, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. In John 5, 26, however, when He comes again, the second time bottled it. We shall see there that He comes to bring judgment. Every man will hear His voice. He will rise out of His grave, some to condemnation, others to life. And so there is the judgment to come. But for His first coming, He came To bring the salvation and redemption that is offered only through the gospel of Christ. And so perhaps as you've read this or even now you're thinking we're talking about the world here. God so loved the world. What does he mean? Does he mean that Jesus died for everyone? Well, we have to acknowledge in Matthew 121, Jesus' name means the Lord saves, and it says you shall call His name Jesus for what? He shall save His people from their sins. In Ephesians 5, He lays His life down for His church. In John 10, He lays His life down for His sheep. We acknowledge that. And we have to see both sides of this coin that is before us here in Scripture. Some might be thinking, well, since it says the world great, that means every person is going to be saved. Universalism that's heresy. That's from hell. That's a doctrine of demons. And so we need to read on again, put John three sixteen in its context and so let's do that. We see here then, concerning this eternal life, that the cross was necessary to bring it, and that it is rooted in the gracious love of God. Last, we see that faith in Christ is the condition needed to bring it, to receive it. Faith in the Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, is the condition necessary of receiving eternal life. Now, faith in Jesus Christ is not the grounds of our forgiveness and our salvation or justification. No, no. The person and work of Jesus Christ is our grounds. But the means by which, the instrument by which we receive this eternal life is by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. I mean, Jesus hammers this. Um, What's Jesus talking about if you're just to survey the passage here, verse three and those afterwards? He's talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. He's talking about eternal life, everlasting life. Verse 17, being saved. And how do we receive it? He's hammering the necessity, not only of regeneration, but of saving faith in Jesus. I mean, he says there in verse 11, you, Nicodemus, y'all really, it's plural, do not receive our witness. Verse 12, you do not believe. How can you believe, verse 15, that whoever believes, verse 16, whoever believes, verse 18, for he who believes, he who does not believe, because he has not believed. You get the point. Is Jesus making a point? Yes. Saving faith is necessary in Jesus Christ in order to receive this eternal life. And so... We talked about saving faith. There are the three aspects of it. Knowledge, assent, and trust. We looked at that. This is one of the great slogans of the Protestant Reformation. Sola Fide. It's on the front of our bulletin for a reason. It's part of the gospel. Some had the knowledge of Christ. Some assented kind of theoretically, mentally to Christ. That's there in verse 24 of chapter 2, chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, it says, but Jesus did not commit. Go back to verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify man for he knew what was in men. And so we see the the necessity of faith in Jesus Christ in order to receive this eternal life. So let me ask a question. If eternal life is the consequence of faith alone in Jesus Christ, what are the consequences of unbelief in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Look at verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Condemnation is what awaits every person who does not trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness and salvation and eternal and everlasting life. Condemnation, again, is the opposite of justification. Justification is a court term just as condemnation. Justification is to be declared not guilty. Condemnation is to be declared guilty and therefore to be liable to the punishment that applies. And so those who are justified are forgiven. Those who are condemned are liable to God's wrath and curse. As we see in the scriptures, liable to eternal damnation, as Jesus talked about so frequently, liable to hell itself, liable to the place where the worm never dies, liable to weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. Is that you? Or have you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus and called upon him? And someone might ask, well, Kevin, if that's true, if it's only saving faith in the Lord Jesus that gets us eternal life, the free grace of God experienced forgiveness of sins, then why don't all who hear the gospel flee to Christ? I mean, if it's that easy, well, we could go back to the necessity of regeneration and the sovereignty of God It is necessary to be born again before we believe. You cannot see the kingdom of God or of heaven unless you are born again. We could go there. That's not the whole picture, though. Look at verse 19 again. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Why don't men come to Jesus Christ on their own? Because we're told they love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. The light there is Jesus, I believe. John 1.4, in him was life and the light of men. And men do not come to Jesus because he is the light. And it says here, because their deeds were evil, is talking about depravity. Verse 20, for everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed Lest his deeds be rebuked, discovered, refuted. This is why men do not come to Jesus Christ. What's the issue here? What is Jesus dealing with? He's dealing with the issue of hypocrisy. Men love the darkness and in religious cultures. And in the days of Nicodemus and the Pharisees and all of that, they had this pretty external external uh, body which projected and signaled, quote, righteousness. But inside, as Jesus says in Matthew 23, they're they're full of dead men's bones. And this is true of every man who has never come to Jesus Christ. It is true of all of us before we came to Jesus Christ. And in some respects, because we have remaining sin, we still play the hypocrite today. We don't want people to know that we're fragile and broken and dirty on the inside. But that's not the disposition of the Christian Christian. As we'll see here in a moment. So Jesus is dealing with their hypocrisy. If you look at verse 21. He says, but he who does the truth. Comes to the light. That his deeds may be clearly seen. That they have been done in God. So he who does the truth. He who believes the truth. Who practices the truth. Who comes to the gospel. who comes to Jesus Christ. Comes to the light. He does so that his deeds may be clearly seen that they've been done in God. That is by the power of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit in the child of God's life. The disposition of the Christian is that in Psalm 139. Where David prays in Psalm 139, 23. Search me, O God. Know me. Know my heart. Try me. And know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. Again, Jesus knows all things. John 2.25. He knows our hearts. It's like this last week. Some of you know I spent the week digging holes in my front yard. I told some of you I feel like a child or a kid in that movie Holes. I had a leak in my front yard. I knew it was there. Something was definitely wrong. I knew that because of the evidence before me. The puddles of water, mud, you know, sink in my yard, all of this. So I thought I might could find the source. So I start digging. I start digging here and there. Can't find it anywhere. And so finally, after a plumber's advice, I got smart by God's grace because I'm stubborn. I called a leak detection company. And this guy came out. In less than an hour, he found it. He had his his tools, his sonic device, his earphones, and he probed here, he probed there, and and finally he found it. And He found it so that he was actually tapping on the cracked pipe. The cracked pipe. And there was the leak. And so I said to him, come on, let's get the shovel, let's dig, let's find it, let's get to the source of this problem. I hate it. Let's get rid of this mess. And you see the Christian looks to Christ and he says, I can't I can't even know my own heart. What's under the surface? Shine the light of your word, the light of your gospel into my heart. Come and fix me, repair me. Let's get rid of this mess. And that's an ongoing prayer. And so as Christians, we began that process of sanctification as we saw A few weeks ago, when we come to Christ, we are positionally sanctified and all of our sins are washed away. We are guilt free because of Christ. But sin leaves a stain and we have the pollution of sin. And so God comes into our lives through his word, through his gospel, by his spirit. He begins cleaning up our lives. That's a lifelong process, by the way. So we're not perfect, but this is the disposition of the true Christian. So as we work our way through this passage, let me make quickly four concluding applications. Number one, when we present the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must present the whole story. We talk about the gospel. It means good news. Well, why is it good news? It's because you're not okay. because there's bad news. So we have to tell and declare and preach the whole counsel of God that men are sinners, that we all were sinners. As Christians, yes, we still sin. But our sins have been forgiven through Jesus Christ. It's unpleasant. It's hard. It will cost you friendships. Perhaps it will, as Jesus has already said, will cost you family members. Well, what do you treasure more? Eternal life and full restored communion and fellowship with God or a temporary earthly physical relationship? That's the choice you have to make. Jesus calls us to it. Doesn't mean we're jerks. But it means we tell the truth. And then second, in order to receive eternal life, one must put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, you come to Christ as the empty beggar or the beggar with an empty hand. And you say to him, I I have nothing to offer, but I know you do. And if you're willing, you can save me. Just like they do in the Gospels. Third. Well, in line with that, in order to receive eternal life, one must believe in Jesus. Let me say this or ask this question. What is it that one must have done to, been, to be condemned and go to hell? Nothing. Nothing. Don't believe and you'll go to hell. Third, biblical love is not mere desire. It is not merely a feeling or an affection. No, we're talking about divine Agape love for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. True, biblical, godly love is action. It's action for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Paul expands upon this in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is what? Patient. Love is what? Kind. Think about this. Um, We are commanded to love our neighbors as ourselves. In fact, that's the second greatest commandment. Your neighbor may not be lovable, but you are to exercise love towards your neighbor. We didn't deserve God's love. No one does. And yet we are to mimic God's love. We are told elsewhere in Scripture. If you apply this to your marriage, guess what? This will be so helpful to you. You look at your spouse. You say, well, uh, she's not the most lovable. She's done this. She did this, she said this, she won't do this. Or look at the way he he leaves his pants on the floor. He leaves his toothbrush on the counter. He never can put his dishes in the dishwasher. I'm sick and tired of He's the most unlovable person I've ever seen. Well, guess what? We are called husbands, Ephesians 5, to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And how has Christ loved the church? Romans 5, 8 tells us how God loved the church. It says there in Romans 8, 5.8, Five, eight, but God demonstrates His own love toward that, towards us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. So exercise true love, not the love that seeks to get something back in return. Fourth, delight in the immeasurable, unmerited, unchanging love of God. What a great source of assurance for Christians. I mean, after you figure it out, okay, this is the gospel. These are the basics of the gospel. Ask yourself the question, how do I know? Okay, I, do I have saving faith? Yeah, I, I do trust. I'm trusting. But sometimes you're, you're tempted, aren't you, to think, well, I, I've done this. Surely God doesn't love me. God loved you before you came into existence on this earth. And that teaches us that it's all Grace. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And in Romans 5, 8, it says, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, 10 and 11. The apostle makes this point there. He says, and love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loved us And sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. As you think about this divine love of God. We are called to show that same love to one another in the church of Jesus Christ. There are some people who are easy to love. I love that person. That person always has a smile on his face, her face. They're always cheerful. They're so welcoming. And then there's that person you you try to avoid. There's not a qualification here. It just says one another. And so, beloved, as we think about that this morning, let us love one another as God has loved us. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we truly are overwhelmed that you would love us. We know without you, we are rebellious. We are dark, filthy, unlovable, rancid, hell bound. Rightfully so. Oh, but you so loved us that you sent your son. And we pray that we, like John the Apostle, would be overwhelmed by that love and that that would manifest itself in our lives daily. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.